0: This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's, it's never
1: this- easy to yeah. challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman.
0: Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough.
1: All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system. Puts us into fight or flight
0: mode and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. In today's episode, I interview Dr. Jessica Opoku Anane out of the University of California in San Francisco. She is a minimally invasive gynecological surgeon and we focus on uterine fibroids. During our conversation, we actually started talking about broader women's health topics and she shared such a wealth of experience that I think all women need to hear. So I've separated out that conversation into a separate episode that I'll be publishing later, but today it's all about uterine fibroids. And remember, this is one of the last episodes of season one for the FemPower Power Health podcast. The last one will be published on November 23rd, just before Thanksgiving. If you do have any suggestions for season two, please do email me at georgie at femmepower-health.com. I'm in the midst of planning for that. And any recommendations that you have for people you want as a guest, questions you would like our experts to answer, please let me know. Also, follow me on Instagram at fempowerhealth. That's where I post a lot of tips and tricks and also just engagement with the audience. And I'd love to be engaging with each of you. And I'd like to give a shout out to Hum Nutrition, which is the sponsor of this episode of the Fem Power Health Podcast. To help boost your well-being in ways you need it most, you can take their quiz and it will give you individualized product recommendations and it's their team of registered dietitians that helped put together the formulas and they will help bring your skin, body and hormones and mood into balance with Hum Nutrition. And you can use the code FEMPOWER and get 15% off your first order of $29 or more. And plus there's a flexible subscription option and chic packaging. And it's insanely easy to stay on top of your daily dosage. And if you want to get the vitamins, you can find them at humnutrition.com. And again, use fempower for 15% off your first order. And in case you're curious, when I took the quiz, it seems as though I need Arctic Formula, Mighty Night, and Uber Energy. And I'll be getting those in the mail and trying them out and reporting back to you guys over the coming weeks on the FemPower Power Health podcast. And in case you didn't write it all down, I will be putting all the information in my show notes, so check it out. Without further ado, let's start talking about uterine fibroids with Dr. Jessica Opoku-Anane.
1: Uh, so uterine fibroids are uh, benign, meaning not cancerous uh, growths of the, um, the muscle tissue inside the uterus. So the uterus is just a really big muscle that contracts and, and causes, that's the cramping that it causes with periods. If like one little muscle fiber starts to grow, or one little muscle cell starts to grow really fast and replicate itself over and over and over again, it can make a little ball of tissue. And that's what we call a fibroid. So it's a tumor, but a not, not cancer tumor. Why are these problematic? So they're used to contained within the uterus. And a lot of times they're often not problematic. So if we look at all women, 70 to 80% of all women will have uterine fibroids, but not all the time are they prob- problematic. They only cause problems if they grow into the wrong place. Or if they get really, really, really large and start pushing on things. In terms of the wrong place, if they start to grow into your uterine cavity or your womb, they disrupt the normal fibers that are there that uh, allow you to menstruate once a month. And so if you can't, if the uterus can't work in a uh, coordinated manner to to cramp and stop you from bleeding a whole lot, then you can end up with really, really heavy periods or hemorrhaging with your periods. And also if it's into the cavity can affect fertility because it's just not enough space for a pregnancy to implant or to grow but if they grow on the outside of the uterus or even in the muscle wall of the uterus and get really, really big, they start to push on things like your bowel or your bladder um, and cause pain and discomfort.
0: Now, some of the things that you're talking about seem to be fairly similar to endometriosis as well. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how endometriosis and uterine fibroids and even adenomyosis, by the way, differ.
1: Um, yes, yeah, so endometriosis is when the, the endometrial tissue, the cells that line the inside of the uterus, kind of what comes out once a month with, the, with your blood, that, that gooey stuff that comes out with the blood, if it goes back through the fallopian tubes and spills into the pelvis outside of the uterus, we call that endometriosis. So fibroids are part of the uterus. Endometriosis is, is when the lining cells, the endometrial tissue go outside of the uterus. And they're very different disorders. So for fibroids, it's just, it's the mass, it's the actual pressure or location of it that's causing problems. With endometriosis, it's the inflammation that endometriosis causes that causes pain and discomfort um, and scar tissue. So you don't tend to have as much inflammation with, with uterine fibroids. Adenomyosis is something um, uh, closer to endometriosis in most situations. So instead of the those endometrial tissue or those period cells going back to the fallopian tubes and spilling outside of the uterus, they go into the muscle wall of the uterus, similar to like a fibroid, but again, it causes inflammation. And so the inflammation causes pain. There's much more significant pain with adenomyosis compared to fibroids. And it can cause still cause the same issues as uh, fibroids, disrupting the normal muscle fibers and cause bleeding
0: if a woman has symptoms so maybe we can go through what the symptoms are some of the ones you outlined which is what made me ask you this question seems to be similar for <laughs> endometriosis uterine fibroids. I mean I know it's not for the patient to go into the doctor and say hi I have uterine fibroids <laughs> but but you know there could be misdiagnosis and all these other things that can happen in confusion because one of the themes I'm seeing in women's health too is it takes a long time to get diagnosed in a lot of cases, unfortunately. Um, So maybe you can walk through these symptoms of the uterine fibroids. And again, they may not be all that different from some of these other conditions, but then maybe we can then walk through like how does someone figure out what's going on
1: and some of the issues with getting diagnosis and treatment? Sure, so for fibroids, I think of it, um, the best way for me to describe it are bulk symptoms and bleeding. So the bulk symptoms are, think of a pregnant woman the uterus is designed and meant to grow and um, grow up to the size of a full full-term baby, and so the symptoms that happen with fibroids is that the, the uterus is just growing. So you're going to feel the same symptoms as a pregnant woman: bulk symptoms, pressure. um, If it's pushing against your bladder, you're going to have to urinate more. If it's pushing against your bowels, you may have more constipation or difficulty uh, with your bowel movements. But bloating, pressure, discomfort, those are usually the bulk symptoms of uterine fibroids. And there are rare other symptoms, but they're so rare, I don't think that most women should think about those. Then there are the bleeding symptoms, so the heavy periods. That's the other really significant portion for uterine fibroids. Um, Just because we brought this up for like adenomyosis or endometriosis is very different than those disorders tend to cause pain. It's not a a pressure. It's not a bulk. It's literally severe pain with your periods. Um, And it can be difficult to distinguish between the two, but more just thinking of bulk, discomfort, bloating, that's more fibroids, but actual pain that's once a month, the same time every month. It's the most classic symptoms for endometriosis, although endometriosis can look like a lot of different things. Yes,
0: that is definitely true. Now, you mentioned heavy periods. So I must ask because, you know, we women aren't taught necessarily what a normal period is. And heavy to one woman may not actually be heavy, but then heavy to another woman actually is heavy. So what is considered a heavy period?
1: Yeah, the technical term is more than 30 milliliters of blood, but I think that that's hard to, to quantify. So the way that we will ask patients are: Are you filling a tampon or a pad front to back? The whole thing um, within an hour to two hours—that's heavy. Um, if you're saturating through your cl- through your clothes and having accidents on yourself, that's too heavy. Or if you're anemic, so feeling lightheaded and dizzy um, with your periods, that's too much as well.
0: I know that sometimes when women will start in their period, may be heavier on the you know, first day or two, and then it gets lighter and lighter. And when the flow first comes out, it could be heavier. So is this like throughout a certain period of time? Because what if, you know, when that period first comes out, it may be heavier than throughout. So when you're saying that tampon in an hour, is that over a certain
1: time period, or even if it's that first tampon? Even if it's that first tampon, if it's consistently even through that first tampon, then it can be. I think for most, yes, for most women, it's heavier in the beginning, but some of it's a little, little bit subjective. It's what's heavy to you, but that's mm-hmm. just a, a general way to gauge, like, is this normal and not normal?
0: I, I wonder if the menstrual cups are starting to help with understanding the milliliters a little bit better. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think that they will, but it's, I, for most women, it's harder to, to tell people what that means. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because I, 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 I've, I've tried the menstrual cup and I'm like, I don't even know if I know how many milliliters it in itself feels. So and then the other, you were talking about, not necessarily the pain, but just the um, the feeling that one may get if they do have the the urine fibroids, that pressure feeling. Do you find that patients tend to wait too long? Because one of the other things I'm seeing in talking to so many women and experts is women tend to grin and bear it. Because again, we aren't taught this is normal. So whatever we live with and whatever our mothers and aunties and grandmothers and friends or at the, the school nurse tell us is what we define as normal. It's not like we get this textbook handed to us when we're 14 years old and said, this is how a woman's body should work. And so I'd love to hear if you have any perspective to add around that feeling of pressure. Cause I also understand with uterine fibroids, if you wait too long, that's when it's harder to actually help the women. Um, so maybe we can just give some words of wisdom around um, you know, what some of the things you're seeing and what you wish women would know so that they go to the doctor at the right time to get the proper diagnosis and treatment.
1: Yeah, I think this is really important for all of women's health. I think we, we suffer too much. <laughs> you know? yeah. it's, it's For many things, it's for prolapse and urinary incontinence, for fibroids, for endometriosis, for all of those ones. I think one of the things that's very clear is you should not be suffering through periods. In any fashion, you know, whether your periods are too heavy and it's embarrassing, you're having embarrassing episodes, that's that's not necess- that's not normal. And we have lots of treatment options. And then when it comes to just discomfort and pain, um, most women don't present early enough. And m- most of our patients, once we actually treat the, the fibroids, women always express, I wish I would have done this earlier. So if you're thinking that maybe this, you know, this is this normal, is it not normal? That's the time to go in and see a doctor. What are the impacts when you have the uterine fibroids, um, long term and short term? In terms of long term consequences, there. People, I know a lot of people worry about the risk of cancer. That risk is relatively low. So in symptomatic women, the risk is somewhere between one in three hundred and fifty women to one in a thousand women of it being the worst one that people worry about, something called a leiomyosarcoma cancer. So for most women. There, there's not um, an emergent consequence of, uh, of uterine fibroids, unless you're just bleeding way too much and starting to hemorrhage um, with your periods. But there are more, um, a lot of con- consequences on your quality of life. The, the second biggest thing that I think is concerning is for fertility. That has obviously huge impacts for most women. Um, it, fibroids can affect your ability to get pregnant and also affect the chance of you getting, delivering too early or miscarrying. Um, so there are significant consequences to fibers depending on where they're located. And then outside of those two kind of more urgent issues, the remaining symptoms are about quality of life. Um, you don't have to do anything about your fibroids. After menopause, they will tend to shrink or at least stay the same size because they grow in response to your reproductive hormones, estrogen and progesterone, and those tend to go down after, in particular, estrogen after menopause. So it's mostly a disease of reproductive age women. So teenagers, more closer to the the 20s up to the 40s, and the later on you are, and um, the closer you are to menopause, the more likely you are to have symptoms from your fibroids.
0: Because I I actually had a friend, uh, so I'm 46, so we're around the same age, and she texted me that she had uterine fibroids and had to have a hysterectomy. You know, I know that once someone is through with their fertility journey, having the the uterus is maybe not as um, important, but just as a woman who like having a body part removed that you were born with could just be psychologically so traumatic to help ease some of the the consequences and symptoms that one is facing. My understanding is the earlier you, treat the uterine fibroids, the easier it is to minimize what those symptoms could be because I've heard women talking about just how awful these symptoms can be they could, if I'm not mistaken, still come back. So it's not as easy as, oh, I'll just go to the doctor when I'm really sick, get the surgery and I'm fine.
1: Yeah, so most people start to develop uterine fibroids in their 20s, rarely in the teenager years. They tend to grow over your lifespan, so over your reproductive lifespan. Generally in the 30s and 40s are when people start to feel more symptomatic about it. It's a little bit tricky to say, to treat them as early as possible. We do use a time to wait until you have symptoms because the fact that they're gonna come back. So let's say a woman has like, is gonna develop 10 fibroids over the course of their reproductive life. If we see you at 20, we have one fibroid and no symptoms, and we take care of that one fibroid, that doesn't mean that you're not gonna have the nine other fibroids develop. So we don't want to do multiple procedures on a woman over their reproductive lifespan. So we do generally say, wait until you have some symptoms before you address them, because they can come back so often. And the chance of them coming back are dependent on how many fibroids you have. So the more fibroids you have, the more likely if you remove all of them or treat them, the more likely they're going to come back again. If you just have one single dominant fibroid, it's much less likely that they will come back again. And the rate of growth is is not the same in everybody. Some women will have uh, very little growth over many, many years, someone will grow rapidly. So I think it's important that if you do have symptoms to see a gynecologist, to get some imaging, to record the size and location of the fibroids, And then if you're not that symptomatic, sometimes we'll just repeat the imaging in a year to see how fast are your fibroids growing. And then to make plans dependent on that. Fertility is often an option, a thing to consider. Uh, so if you're not that symptomatic, We might say, wait until you're closer to when you want to conceive and then take care of the fibroids because if you take care of them too early, then you risk the chance that you might need a second surgery again right before you deliver. So it is a little bit tricky, um, the timing of when you do treat the fibroids, but in general, we try to wait until you have symptoms.
0: Got it. Okay. That makes sense. And- with respect to the diagnosis of it, you mentioned imaging. So, what else can be done? What else needs to be done? I guess to have um, the proper diagnosis.
1: Imaging is the most common. Most people will start off with the ultrasound uh, before proceeding with any interventions like uterine artery embolization, one of the procedures to shrink the fibroids or the surgery. Most people will require an MRI um, to determine whether you're a a candidate for a more minimally invasive procedure or for uh, some of the other interventions to shrink the fibroids. Um, Sometimes it depends, you know, if your periods are really, really irregular, there's concern for other causes for irregular bleeding, meaning that you're skipping periods all the time, or your periods are coming more than once in a month, and sometimes we'll do an endometrial biopsy. Which is just taking a sample of the inside lining of the uterus, sending it off for biopsy to make sure there's nothing worse than for a cancer or precancer.
0: Are there issues that you found with women being diagnosed? Because so much of what, what I'm seeing, also through these interviews and the research and the women I talk to, is a lot of conditions. Like right now, it's PCOS Awareness Month, and I know this episode will go live after PCOS Awareness Month, but um, but I'm I'm thinking about it because of that. And I know women; it takes them a really really long time to get diagnosed, you know, endometriosis, I think it's seven or ten years. It's crazy. So is the same thing with uterine fibroids or is it a little bit more straightforward?
1: The diagnosis is much more straightforward. Okay. Uh, how long it takes for women to present with their symptoms is still a little bit delayed, but it's a, it's one of the easiest of the of the, the things that you mentioned, it's one of the easier ones to diagnose. Okay. Well thank so goodness. <laughs> that is wonderful. So generally you just need it all down. Okay. <laughs> Got it. you know there are there are always caveats like diagnosing a fibroid versus adenomyoma can sometimes be tricky but because it does make a mass a big enough mass that we can see on imaging it's much easier just to diagnose with a, with the a ultrasound or MRI
0: now what about getting treatment for the uterine fibroids are there things that women should be cautious of is it that anyone can do this. Everyone's properly trained. Do they need to go to a subspecialist? Like if a woman is going down this path and wants to get the, the right treatment, because we also, if they do need the surgery, want to minimize how many times it happens and, and whatnot. So if it, we're doing it once, we want to do it right, right? So what should women be aware of when they go on this journey of, I think I've got this, I have a family history, or I know I have it. What, what do they need to watch out for?
1: Well, I think this is where... Um training and going to uh, centers are are really important just because what a physician is allowed to offer is, is dependent on what their what resources their, their institution provides so what procedures. So we talked to, I talked about unit artery embolization, which is very common, but there are other procedures like MRI guided shrinkage or radiofrequency ablation that are not available in most places, in most hospitals and, and clinics. So going to a larger center for fibroids you're more likely to be offered many non-surgical procedures that you wouldn't be offered at other places. Um, The other thing is definitely for surgery, there's a huge difference in what options you have. Just because when we do regular OBGYN training, most people are not trained to do a minimally invasive laparoscopic or robotic myomectomy currently. So there are some surgeons, and we have some really good ones at our institution, who after residency took their own initiative to work with um, you know, some of the, in- the industry representatives for the robotic company to, te- to learn it. Other people, we, like I did a fellowship, so we did a structure two extra years to learn how to do laparoscopic or robotic um, removal of the fibroids through the tiny incisions. So we're very comfortable in doing that. But if you go to a provider who has not had other training in that, they're less likely to offer you those the, the more minimally invasive procedures.
0: And how would a woman know the training specifically? Do they have to ask, how, could, yeah. and I, I, <laughs> how would it work?
1: <laughs> I do think for all surgery, you should always ask, you know, how many of these procedures have you done? If you know that there are options, which can be hard, but knowing that there are options for laparoscopic or robotic myomectomies for surgery, you can ask them, do you do these procedures? How many of these procedures have you done? And what's your training in a nice, polite way. (laughs) But then also there's a really great website. So there's MIS for women on the aagl.org which is previously stood for their American Association of Gynecologic Laparoscopists. That's actually a good way to look up more minimally invasive surgeons in your community. Um, So if you don't want to have to ask, then you could just go on the AAGL website. I will be putting this
0: on our website. What I'm finding is there's great organizations and individuals who are compiling all of these lists. And so as I learn about them, I'm putting them on the website for the specific conditions because it's really important and it's hard to find. I I will say um, just as a side note that some of them are hard because if it's um, a physician who signs themselves up or like the way they compile the data, like with PCOS, um, the PCOS Awareness Association, they're using um, ICD-9 codes. So if a physician is coding PCOS a lot, then that means they're probably treating a lot of these women and that's how they're picking those doctors. So there's definitely an art to it. So I appreciate you sharing this and we will definitely um, add it to the website.
1: Yeah, there's been a lot of push to try to standardize who like makes centers of excellence for things like fibroids and endometriosis and all that. And uh, there's a a little bit of pushback, obviously, because that does take away certain procedures from certain. OBGYNs. Um, But it is important. I think the way that you get around that is, one, go to one of those websites because at least we'll give you kind of an idea of people who are doing, at least doing the procedures. And then asking your surgeon just, you know, how many of these are you doing? The the only problem is that a lot of times people don't know baselines. So, you know, if you don't know that sometimes this one procedure is really rare and doing it five times a year is a big, that is a lot. You have to kind of ask the question, like, compared to your colleagues or compared to other people, how many of these procedures are you doing?
0: Okay. No, that's helpful because it's funny. I um, interviewed uh, Dr. Tamara Suchkin, uh, who's an endometriosis specialist in July. It was June or July. I think it was July. And he, he talked about this as well as make sure you ask the surgeon. And I asked him like, what's normal? Like, How many is a lot? Because also with endo, like I had my endometriosis surgery and it was a long surgery. And so if you have, you know, this is not something you do five a day, right?
1: <laughs> but I mean, I think in general, volume matters. So most, yeah. most high volume surgeons are doing anywhere between 100 and 300 cases a year. Okay. So oh, that's it, a good number. Okay. It, and it might not be all fibroid, all endometriosis, but right. it just gives you a sense, is, is this more of a surgical person or this is more of an obstetrician that's more delivering babies? I think that's a good starting part, starting okay. point, and then you can ask your surgeon how many of these cases. I, I do bring it up because I'm an invasive surgeon. So some, there are certain procedures like a CERCLAWS where you're trying to help prevent people um, from losing babies or something. And, and people ask me, how many have you done per year? And I'm like, yeah, I've done like 10 per year, but that's actually more than 99.9% of, you know, the gynecologists in the country. So it's a, it. people, you do have to kind of know a baseline in order to, but I can explain, I know what the, the purpose of the question is when the patient yep. asks that. So I can explain those things to Got it. Okay, that's a really, really, really important nuance.
0: Consumer sector of women's health. Visit www.femtechconsumerinnovation.com to view the superstar speaker lineup and enter code FEMPOWER15 for 15% off your ticket. Hope to see you there. I'd love to talk a little bit more about the hysterectomies. You know, just one, I, I guess I've become a little bit passionate about this because when I was at the Endometriosis Foundation of America conference in 2019, I'd been hearing stories about like 20 year olds having to get hysterectomies. And then with my friend texting me, like I'm just getting chills. um, I, I just, I have so much empathy for women who have to make that decision regardless of their age. Cause even if you're done having kids or choose not to have kids, I, I literally cannot even fathom what, that must be like, and so for women who are potentially having to make that decision, you know I guess what would you say to them because I, I i'd hate for a woman to make the decision because it's the wrong care the person who's caring for her, or if it's out of fear or just you know coming from the wrong place, yeah. and so what what can what would you like to share with women just so that they know they're making the right decision coming from the right place because again, I I can't even imagine having to
1: decide that. Well, what I would say for fibroids, if somebody asks you to have a hysterectomy before the age of 30, get another opinion. It's rare that you would ever um, need to do that at that age. Um, The other thing is that, uh, and I would say in general, if you feel uncomfortable with a a hysterectomy, getting a second opinion is always a great idea Um, because there's a lot of variation in what um, physicians offer for for uterine fibroids based on our training and what what we have available in our systems. And you just want to make sure that you're actually being offered everything that could happen that you could possibly have done. So there are procedures for shrinking fibroids, there are procedures for removing fibroids, like a myomectomy procedure, both laparoscopic robotic or the traditional bigger incisions. There are procedures to burn the lining of the uterus if you're having bleeding. And if your doctor is not offering all of those procedures, then maybe you need to get a second opinion. Now there are situations where a hysterectomy is the obvious choice. And those situations are when you have a whole lot of fibroids and a, a whole lot of, and especially a whole lot of big fibroids. And the reason why is because more importantly, a whole lot of fibroids is when you have so many, you are taking more risks to do a myomectomy procedure just to use their fibroids, in particular the risk of hemorrhaging and bleeding and needing a blood transfusion, having to convert from a minimally invasive procedure to a bigger incision surgery, and with associated increased risk of infection and pain. And so there are certain situations where a hysterectomy seems to be the more obvious answer. And even with my patients, even though I know that that's the obvious answer, if they still want to keep their uterus, I will still comply up to the point where I, where I believe that this is just unsafe. Okay. So um, when that does happen, I'm much more likely, like let's say some, so what the research shows is a woman has greater than about eight to 10 fibroids, or fibrates that are, are bigger than about eight to 10 cent. And this data is all over the place because obviously it depends on who's doing it, right? So if you go to high volume surgeon, our numbers are like usually, okay, I, I start to bleed at about 15 centimeters versus somebody else might start to bleed at six centimeters. You know, so there's a lot of variability, but once your fibroids are more numerous, Around, let's say 10, and your fibres are bigger, let's say around eight, then you're starting to have much higher risk from doing the myomectomy procedure to remove the fibres, then to just take out the uterus. Um, so consider that, and that sometimes a surgeon might say, you know, the hysterectomy is a better option, more for your safety, but it's just making sure that that's the reason why they're saying that. And maybe it's just ask, asking that question, are you saying to do the hysterectomy because? You're worried about this my safety and doing just taking out the, the fibroids, or are you saying to do the hysterectomy because, in a nice way, that's the procedure that you're more comfortable with? And now, I do think that if you're going to choose that surgeon, lots of women like to have surgery with the with the with the person who they know the longest, who delivered all their babies. If a surgeon says to you, "I feel more comfortable with this type of procedure," you should go with that. Don't like. Force a surgeon to do a procedure they're not comfortable with, but you just have to get an understanding of why are they pushing you towards a hysterectomy or not?
0: What about prevention? So we talked about, you know, this is what you know, this is how you diagnose it. Here are the symptoms. You know, they can grow potentially um, as you age. We know that the estrogen and progesterone, once you go through menopause, decrease. So therefore, the symptoms may um, be minimal again. You know, what can we do from the get-go to not let it get to this point?
1: Yeah, there's not that great of evidence behind this. Is probably one of the, the better thing that has one of the things that has better evidence is for vitamin D deficiency. So if you do have vitamin D deficiency, some supplementation might be helpful for that. Otherwise, um, a lot of the interventions are theoretically um it's trying to decrease estrogen or progesterone because um, we know that those are the hormones that drive fiber growth and production. So sometimes people will try to decrease things that so are high in estrogen, progesterone. So in particular, like things like soy, fatty foods, fried foods, red meats that have a lot of hormone, that stimulate hormone production. We don't know if those are very helpful, but it seems likely that um, that might be helpful in preventing them either from developing or from growing.
0: And how does birth control play a role with
1: uterine fibroids? Yeah, very controversial. So (laughs) um, as we stated, like estrogen and progesterone stimulate fibroid growth and production. And so uh, most of our birth control methods are estrogen and progesterone. However, so the data is not clear about whether for sure it should be counterindicated in women who have fibroids, but we often use them anyways, because they're very good treatments for bleeding. So that's why often we'll still use them, even though we're not sure what their effects are for, for fibroid growth. If you wanted to avoid or do, choose a method that has the least amount of hormones, like an IUD, a Mirena IUD that has um, progesterone only, or that, uh, that's a very good option because it's very low dose progesterone and there's no estrogen in there. So that's probably the best option for someone who has bleeding and fibroids that, that would unlikely cause a lot of growth, but this is an area where we go back and forth about whether it's um, it's a good idea or not a good idea to do to use birth control. If you're hemorrhaging, it's a great idea. <laughs> There's very right. there, there are a few things that work for um, heavy bleeding. You can try tranexamic acid or stadia which is a has no hormones in it to help. Which sometimes people are not offered. But it, Wait, what is this? I've never heard of this tranexamic acid. Yep. It's a pill that you take with only with your periods. It has no hormones in it. Ah. It works for your coagulation cascade, so more working for you to clot in the correct way to stop bleeding. And that's very much an option I give to patients when they want to avoid all hormones who have fibroids. So that's an option.
0: Okay. Is it a, a prescription or over-the-counter? Yeah. Prescription. It's a- okay. Interesting. I had never heard of this. Yeah. I always learn something new. <laughs> Many things new on these podcasts.
1: And then birth control, you know, if you if you're hemorrhaging all the time, birth control actually does work. So I, I wouldn't say don't don't take it. But there are a few other options. The really the only other non-hormonal uh, option that we have available in the U.S. is for, um, for birth control pills. There are some other options, but they're just not available currently in the United States. Uh, what are those? I'm curious. So this early Pristol has some really good evidence. Early evidence. It's um it's It's kind of more working through, it doesn't increase estrogen in order to to stop the fibroids and it possibly can shrink the fibroids. Um, They use it a lot in Europe, but there are some concerns about it causing some side effects. And so it's not available in the United States right now. There are some people that still go um, to try to get it from other countries to still use it. though.
0: Okay. Got it. And then what about, because I believe when we just did our um, introductory call to get to know each other, we talked about, you know, holistic medicine and the role that it, that it plays. And I'd love for you to talk about what you've seen and, you know, if there's any concerns that you have that, that women should be aware of. And, and if you work with them and partner with them to help the women that come through your center.
1: I do. So we're really lucky at UCSF. We have a whole center for integrated medicine, our OSHA center. Um, so a lot of women, uh, we refer a lot of women there to help them. They talk about dietary changes, about, um, other interventions you can do like for discomfort or pain, like acupuncture, pelvic yoga, things you can do to try to supplement or help with your symptoms. Um, and I promote all of them. I think, you know, I've never seen those methods shrink a fibroid, but I've definitely seen that those methods help to. Um, delay needing a surgery or you know either the timing for the surgery or maybe not needing a surgery at all. Um, a lot of those others a lot of those um, supplements also help with decreasing estrogen or decreasing inflammation and those things can be very helpful for kind of the GI bloating symptoms that women have along for, for many conditions including fibroids.
0: Is there anything else that you um, would want women to know that maybe I haven't asked, during this podcast or when it comes to uterine fibroids or even just generally about about their health. Uh,
1: you know I think that it's, a, it's important to develop a good relationship with your gynecologist to ask these questions early, um, to not be afraid to get tested and to um, do your research. <laughs> I, I, I agree with you on doing your research to know that you're being offered all of the options. And then more importantly, just knowing that, you know, it's not normal to, to really have significant discomfort and bleeding with your periods or, um, there, there are options.
0: Thank you for tuning into this discussion on the Femme Power Health podcast. You can refer to the show notes for links to information that is referred to in this episode. And if you like this episode and found it timely and valuable, please take a moment to tell a friend or a colleague about FemPower Health. And right after this episode is over, please think of one person who might find this episode helpful and tell them about it. And if your friend is new to podcasting, please show them how to subscribe to our show. And another way to support FemPower Health podcast is to leave a review. Where you listen to podcasts. And as a reminder, the information shared by FemPower Health is not medical advice, but for information purposes to enable you to have more effective conversations with your doctor. Always talk to your doctor before making health related decisions. Additionally, the views expressed by the FemPower Health podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. See you next week. And that wraps up another empowering session here at the FemPower Power Health Podcast. Now, before you dash off, I've got a quick, exciting invitation for you. Please join our vibrant community by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, because it's really your frontline update on groundbreaking women's health research, the latest health-enhancing products, fun quizzes to boost your health IQ, and unique discoveries that you won't want to miss. All of this delivered straight to your inbox, cutting through the noise of social media algorithms.